It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it's only something to your own life. Beat it up and I've seen got no peace. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in the fire, the system of the gangs, the government for hire in the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. The border trap is some the ground with that low plane flying and up for overflow, but you make the corner to put in a little secret devil, every devil world in your own knees. your heart, tell me the surrender in the river of the right. You patriotic, patriotic, plan might right, might feel it, it's pretty It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. And his wife, Nurse Amy. But we're not in the dark heart of the city. We're in the bright part of sunny South Florida. That's right. Sunny South Florida where it's raining like all get out. And you know what? That's actually pretty good because we got a lot of plants that need it. We, I'll tell you, some of the stuff that we have, cucumbers and and peppers, we have a lot of banana peppers growing. They really can't go very long without drooping from lack of water. In this heat? Are you kidding? I know. It is pretty crazy. Well, hey, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a reliable rookery of resoluteness in an irrational world. I'm Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a 1,000 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I am Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife and the woman who is trying to fix the gravelly voice yes. of the man sitting next to her. Yeah, my voice has gotten it's a little allergies. worse lately. We're getting tests done. and All your tests are fine. So far, it's so allergies. good. I'm de-dusting this house. I'm even having the air ducts cleaned and the air conditioning Oh, my goodness. It's just, it's a nonstop with dust. You turn around where you dusted, and there's dust back there. <laughs> and, and this room we're in is a padded room, which is pretty funny, because you and I are a little kooky. <laughs> and it has these audio pads hanging from the ceiling that are really thick and heavy. Right. But I bet they gather a little dust. Our own padded So, you know what I'm going to do? Fabric, when we're done, I'm actually going to get the vacuum cleaning attachment and I'm going to vacuum them and then I'm going to get the steamer. You know how we have the steamer for the shirts? Yeah. Instead of ironing? Mm-hmm. I'm going to use the steamer on them. Hmm. To kill any possible dust mites or anything that might be living anywhere. <laughs> it's just going to kill everything in the house. I'll take all the help I can get. <laughs> I'm trying, baby. Well, I appreciate it. 
And that's why you are the queen and I am the codger around here. <laughs> and we're here to try to help the faithful few keep it together even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, if you've been injured in an accident with an insidious iguana, well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. Yes, all information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. And I just want to make a little announcement. We have done some amazing interviews recently Mm-hmm. And we're going to be playing those, but we're not going to be playing those until we leave. That's right. We're actually going to England. <gasps> oh. We'll be talking to some preparedness folk there and seeing the sights, mostly seeing the sights. And we're going to be putting In Scotland. Up, yeah, we're going to be right in a bunch of different. York. I actually have traced relatives to York. That's really interesting. So that's pretty cool it's stuff. Be totally fun, but for. At least two shows will put up um, rewinds. But, you know, I'm looking at my schedule. We actually get back on a Friday. So the next day, we right. could record our show if, right. but we have some, if we're awake. <laughs> but we have some great interviews. One we with do. Craig I'm really Cotto, excited. One with Todd Sepulveda. One with uh, Jeff Motes. Yep. Some, some great ones. And we'll still be putting up some. Definitely at least each show will have some content that is fresh. So don't you worry about that. So listen, you guys out there, are you ready to show the world that you've got more sense than a carton of cockroaches and get the training than education that you're going to need in times of trouble? And if you do, well, you know what you're going to need to go along with that is a quality medical kit as well. There's no better place to get that kit than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never-equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. I want you to compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. I'll bet you'll agree that our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. If you want more proof, just check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. See what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. And on top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings accounts. Just look at our special HSA FSA section in the store. And do us and yourselves a favor by subscribing to our website at doomandbloom.net to get special discounts and coupons in our newsletters along with some extra content. I guarantee you, I guarantee that you'll be glad you did. Hey, I want to go over some headlines about the infectious disease dengue fever. Dengue fever is apparently breaking out all sorts of places. Here's the headlines. Singapore dengue outbreak nearly 9,000 cases through July. Nicaragua declares alert over dengue fever. That's in the Washington Post. Bangladesh grapples with country's worst dengue outbreak. That's in the Miami Herald. Three headlines about dengue fever outbreaks this year. Pretty amazing. Oh, wait. Actually, they're just headlines from one day. August 1st, 2019. Well, I got to tell you, I think we need to talk a little bit about dengue fever. Now, a lot of people heard me mention it when we had the Zika epidemic down in South America, but I haven't really talked much about it since, and I think you need to know. Uh, dengue fever is a viral infection, 
Uh, it's an infection caused by uh, a virus that's transmitted to humans by mosquitoes. It's usually seen between about 35 degrees north and 35 degrees south latitudes and lower than about 3,000 feet elevation. If you match that in terms of where you're living, you are in dengue territory. Now, the amazing thing about dengue is that the rate of infection in terms of numbers of cases has increased greatly since the year 1960. And they're saying that it's due to, some people say, climate change. Mm -hmm. Other people say encroaching civilization and population growth in warmer regions. Mm -hmm. And you know what? In South Florida, I can tell you that I believe that the development of residential air conditioning, which occurred and became very popular just around that time, 1960, probably has had something to do with it. Definitely a big factor in precipitating the explosion in potential dengue victims. Well, that makes sense because people could actually live down here without suffering 24 hours a day if they had air conditioning. That's true. It, 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 it allowed people to move down here and shut their doors and their windows and go to sleep without mosquitoes. So the population exploded at that point. My grandmother lived down here in the late 1950s and uh, in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. She didn't have, for a good period of that time, air conditioning. And you walked around all the time with a fan with a hand fan fanning yourself and you had your electric fan if you were lucky you had a few of them and that was a way that you tried to keep cool and it was almost impossible and there was always everybody was sweating all over the place i remember when we visited down here you know what they did have though were ceiling fans ceiling fans they, they had, did they had fans which that right. actually allowed some air circulation i grew up when we moved down here in 74 uh, my dad didn't put air conditioning into our house until 84. So I actually grew up from fourth grade through high school with no air conditioning. And I'll tell you what, it's no fun trying to blow dry your hair in the morning as a high school girl when you're sweating to death. Terrible. In a, in a bathroom that you just took a hot shower in. And it's now hot and steamy, and there's no air conditioning, and you're trying to dry your hair. Oh, wow. That's a double whammy. And you know what I did? I lived in braids a lot. Oh. I braided my hair when it was wet, and it would keep my head cool until I could get to school and at least have some air conditioning <laughs> in the classrooms. So it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see the correlation between the Air conditioning explosion, the development of residential air conditioning commonly used and in various communities, especially large cities, and the increase, the great increase since 1960 of dengue fever. Um, As a matter of fact, there there are so many cases of dengue fever that 400 million people are thought to have gotten infected with the dengue fever last year, with that dengue virus. So you are not alone if you have actually have had it. The good news is that most people have no symptoms. Most people don't even know they have it. But there are 96 million of those 400 million that weren't quite so fortunate and did develop a sickness. Now, this is a mosquito-borne virus. The question, mosquito in question is the Aedes aegypti mosquito, but other species may possibly spread it. Uh, the Asian tiger mosquitoes, one that comes to mind just offhand. 
a mosquito bites a human with that has the dengue virus and becomes infected. It doesn't get sick, but it's now a vector. The, in other words, it's, the virus is now in its saliva, and it carries it and injects it into other people. And as a matter of fact, the, once the virus is in the mosquito, the virus is in the mosquito for life. Luckily, the life of the mosquito it's isn't not, very long. Isn't many years and years. That's right. <laughs> Now, there are actually four different but related viruses that can cause dengue fever. They're all in the flavivirus family, a lot of scary viruses in there, West Nile, uh, Ebola, all sorts of different ones. Mm -hmm. But the symptoms are similar no matter what dengue virus you actually wind up getting. If you're in the unlucky minority that actually gets sick, you might expect to see signs about maybe about four to seven days after the actual bite from the mosquito, and you might experience... A high fever. A high fever is one of the main hallmarks of dengue fever. And when I say high, I mean up to 404 degrees Fahrenheit. We are not kidding. And when it comes, it comes rapidly, very sudden onset. You also get a lot of headaches. A lot of people complain of pain behind their eyes. Uh, you get severe joint, bone, and muscle pain. As a matter of fact, they call it break bone fever because of all of the orthopedic symptoms. Ow. That's right. Uh, of course, uh, you, you get fatigue and malaise. You don't feel well. Uh, you might start having GI symptoms like nausea and vomiting. You might get diarrhea. And there's a skin rash that you'll find that you have uh, on the torso and other areas that starts about several days after, I would think, the fever starts. Well, so the good news is most people resolve their symptoms in one to two weeks, and they're immune to the virus at least the specific strain they contracted, remember there are four, once they get it. But the interesting thing is that if somebody who has a history of dengue fever gets sick again, it's likely from a different strain, and it seems like second dengue infections tend to be much worse than the first. Didn't you mention this before when you were talking about uh, chikungunya? That yes. That there was some correlation between that and another infection? A lot of these viruses indeed are Do you remember which endemic. one it was? Okay. Zika. Oh, perhaps. yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. You said if they had had chikungunya before, then when they got Zika, they had a much worse case. Right. That they were more likely to have problems. With and yeah, I think you can say the same for dengue. I haven't looked that up recently, but I think you could say that. Now, the thing about dengue is that there's a small percentage of patients that actually don't just recover after one to two weeks. They actually go on to develop a life-threatening version of this disease that's called dengue hemorrhagic fever. And they get, these people get complications such as continued and resistant fever. They bleed from their nose and their gums spontaneously. They develop damage to their uh, blood vessels and their lymph glands and liver enlargement and other organ malfunction may occur. The disease, if it progresses even further, becomes dengue shock syndrome, almost like toxic shock syndrome, where there's massive bleeding and organ failure and circulatory collapse, and that's it for you. If you had to compare it to another disease, think of end-stage Ebola. Now, there is no cure. It's a virus. There is no cure for dengue fever. Treatment is symptomatic. That is, you treat the fever with uh, acetaminophen, Tylenol. They recommend against aspirin or ibuprofen because it may make you bleed more. They want you to 
give uh, the victim oral hydration. Just make sure they're well hydrated. A lot of these people with high fevers, they become dehydrated. And you need to enforce bed rest. These people need to rest. There is a vaccine, but it's controversial, uh, although it was approved by the FDA this year. But it's only for a certain subgroup of patients, not for the general population. And they seem to be having some problems with it in the Philippines, where there are some kids that may have gotten sick from the vaccine itself. So an interesting and controversial vaccine that is uh, just recently out. Now, if you live in an area where Aedes aegypti mosquitoes make their home, you can best protect yourselves by just doing a few precautions. I would use DEET or other mosquito repellent regularly, even indoors in some cases. You can use lemon eucalyptus oil, picaridin, and there are a number of different ones that are acceptable by the EPA and are effective against mosquitoes. Um, You can... Make sure that you're wearing long sleeve shirts and long pants, especially when outdoors. Uh, you might consider tucking the cuffs of your pants into your socks if you're in an area where there are a lot of mosquitoes. You can spray your clothing with an insecticide known as permethrin. Not your skin, your clothing. Permethrin, I think 0.5% sprayed on your clothing lasts for several washings, actually, mm-hmm. and kills mosquitoes if they land on your clothes. So... That's uh, and they, by the way, that's used also for a number of other things, ticks and things like that. Now, if you do have air conditioning, you want to keep your windows and your doors shut. If you don't have air conditioning, of course, you want to have some screens on your doors and windows to keep the bugs out. Right. And uh, might consider even mosquito netting over your bed. That is a common way to get bitten is just to be laying there. Nice and warm oh. in your bed, which mosquitoes like heat. I'll tell you what, I got really good at killing mosquitoes, and you've witnessed that. Oh yeah, you are. I can hunt down a mosquito like somebody's hunting down a deer. I can track it, I can watch it, and I know where they go, and I'm quick. Yeah, could you dress it? And though? I don't, and I don't have, <laughs> I don't have to shoot it, which is really nice. Although an air gun might be a good idea. For mosquitoes, if you had a lot of them, that um, would have been a good thing. What do you think? Well, no. <laughs> Why not? An air gun. It'll just a little pellet. explode them. Well, yeah, I guess oh, so. Oh, no, I don't mean that shoot out pellets. I mean something that shot out like air. Oh, like oh. Like a quick, quick carb oh, jet okay. of air. Well, you know what? Maybe. Well, certainly would I'll send... call it the mosquito annihilator. Well, There's probably something out there. Someone's going to write to us and say... <laughs> Yeah, that exists. Now, the funny thing about... <laughs> I'm not mos- talking about sh- shooting a mosquito yeah. with a pellet gun. That's hilarious. I was saying you had to be a pretty good shot. <laughs> you know what? I bet I would have gotten to be a good shot. I'll bet. I'll bet you would have. Because there was nothing worse than sleeping. Again, we had no air conditioning. We had screens, but those little suckers get in. They do. You know, you're going in and out of the house. They just slip in, and then they look for that warm body sleeping at night, and then they buzz your ear. Speaking of buzzing, you know, I'm not sure about those oh. electronic zappers. I think that you wind up. We had up, one. You probably we wind had one up on the patio. Did you ever see mosquitoes killed yes. by it? Yes. You did. Zzz, okay. And you'd hear it. Zzz, zzz, zzz. Well, I know, but were they mosquitoes? <laughs> <laughs> That's the question. Because mosquitoes so. are attracted to, to certain heat, 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 sweat, things like that. And if you put your zapper away from where that is, interesting. Then it might you might be getting 
other kinds of bugs, but maybe not hmm. so much mosquitoes. But it's interesting. Uh, it would be interesting to see Good what question. percentage of those bugs are actually mosquitoes that wind up getting zapped. All I know is when I heard that zip in it, it was a good feeling to me. <laughs> there you go. It was a happy feeling. Now, the best way to prevent bites, well, is reducing the mosquito population around your property. They require water in which to lay their eggs, and so you might begin by removing items that collect water, rainwater, and things like that whenever possible. There's junk like tin cans, flower pots, old tires. Gosh, they don't really need that much water at all to be able to breed and to uh, lay their eggs. So that's something to be watchful of. You should always change the water in your bird baths and your pet's water dish very frequently mm -hmm. because they can also be great places for mosquito to mosquitoes to uh, lay their eggs. So very important, change the, that water frequently. Mosquitoes, by the way, transmit a lot more than just dengue fever. They're responsible for malaria. They're responsible for yellow fever, West Nile, all, Zika, so many different kinds of viruses, uh, viral diseases. You just you, know, you can't shake a stick at it. Now, if you take steps to prevent the bites, that's what really is going to be key. You're taking steps in that case to prevent your family from getting sick, and you're going to prevent a new outbreak of the dengue pandemic. It is indeed a pandemic. If you've got, if you've got outbreaks community-wide, thousands of cases in places as far apart as Bangladesh, Nicaragua, and Singapore, man, that is a pandemic. So we're talking about a pandemic disease here. Absolutely. You know, I was... Uh, communicating, uh, corresponding by email with mm -hmm. a former paramedic, and he was telling me about last week's show that we didn't mention an ectopic pregnancy. An ectopic pregnancy... Well, I think you might have just talked about pregnancy... Complication, complica risks. Yeah. yeah. Risky. At the early part, but... But that is one. Specific, right. One specific problem that's life-threatening would be ectopic. Now, the word ectopic means, actually, it comes from the word for out of Out, place. Outside. Right. Out of place. Right. right, exactly. And so you can call it also a tubal pregnancy, although about, and the grand majority of pregnancies that are out of place are in the fallopian tube. There's right. about 3% or maybe a little more that occur in the ovary or just in the abdomen. Some people get abdominal pregnancies. I've actually dealt with that a couple of times in my career. Very unusual. Um, and well, one interesting uh, anatomical uh, thing to explain is that the fallopian tube is not just connected to the ovary. It opens up like a flower right. around the ovary, but it's not the end of the tube. The ovary is not directly connected. So the egg kind of floats, you know, almost say like in, in midair right. and then goes into the fallopian tube. And then and then it's supposed little... to become fertilized at if that's what you're looking to do. And then that egg travels down in a fertilized situation into the uterus and implants itself. Right. But the fertilization takes place in the fallopian tube. And sometimes if the egg doesn't get into the fallopian tube before the sperm attacks it, it, it could 
make its way into the abdominal cavity. Sperm which is attacks it? You mean yeah. makes love That's, to it? No, I feel that though, <laughs> if you watch the videos, it aggressively burrows in well, frantically. Well, with permission, I hope. Yes. No permission. <laughs> <laughs> but right. anyway. That's the point. What it's supposed to do is the egg's supposed to float into the fallopian tube, become fertilized, and then the fertilized egg is supposed to go through either fallopian tube, right or left side, and go into the uterus and then implant itself. That's the proper sequence. And that happens because, by the way, because of these hair-like little projections called cilia, and cilia are what actually gives you the movement that takes a fertilized egg and sends it into the uterus itself. And when there's something that damages that cilia, let's say somebody who has a pelvic infection, chlamydia or gonorrhea and doesn't get it treated, well, then you've got a problem because that kills that cilia. And there's a number of other things that do that, that kill cilia too. Uh, Then that fertilized egg doesn't know where to go and has a higher chance of implanting in the actual tube. Now, the rate of a tubal pregnancy compared to a normal pregnancy is about inside the uterus is about maybe 1% to 2% in developed countries at least. And the thing about tubal pregnancies is that, well, a tube can only stretch so far. A pregnancy starts off as being microscopic, of course, right? It becomes, it's a fertilized egg and then the egg becomes an embryo and then it goes further and further, and as it becomes a fetus, it begins to grow. And as it grows, it sort of takes up space, and luckily the uterus has the ability to stretch and to grow with it. And to accommodate the size. Exactly. However, that same can't be said for a fallopian tube. Nope. And a fallopian tube, once you hit a few weeks of pregnancy, well... That tube is going to be swollen, and eventually, I'll bet it'll pop. And if it pops, that's called a ruptured tubal pregnancy or ruptured ectopic pregnancy, then it's very possible that it might rupture across a blood vessel, and that blood vessel will start to bleed. And once it does that, it depends, I guess, on what the blood vessel is. If it's an artery, you can get in really, really big trouble. So I want to just tell you this little story of about a family member of mine. When, when I was a first-year medical student, I hadn't even taken my first step in the hospital. I was just in classrooms learning physiology and pharmacology and stuff like that. Well, a family member began to complain of lower abdominal pain. Now, she refused to go to the doctor, thought she'd feel better in the morning, but in the middle of the night, she woke up in severe pain and she looked like she had a, a distended abdomen. So I took a look. And I was a little alarmed. I took her immediately to the emergency room where they diagnosed her with, well, guess what? Gastroenteritis. They said she had some kind of tummy infection. They gave her some antibiotics and something to calm her stomach, quote unquote, and sent her home. Now, even I, not even having yet read my first page of OBGYN text, I was pretty skeptical about that. But we were assured that she would be fine. But in the parking lot, in the parking lot, no less, she nearly fainted. I took her back. I started asking some really blunt questions. I'm, uh, well, 
I should I shouldn't be embarrassed about it, but I was not nice about it. And I found out that they had not done a pregnancy test as part of the evaluation. They just sort of fell her belly and they decided she had gastroenteritis. Um, now, this was, I'm going to tell you how long ago this was, 1976. Man, that tells you how old I am. And you know what? We were all witch doctors then. They say that, you know, every generation of doctor considers the last generation to be a bunch of witch, witch doctors, and then the next generation considers that generation to be a bunch of witch doctors. That's because medical technology has just advanced so quickly. And so maybe we were all witch doctors back then, but I don't know. It was still ridiculous that they didn't check a young woman with abdominal pain and a swollen abdomen for pregnancy, right? I think you even you guys out there, if you're, even if you haven't had one iota of medical training, probably would agree with that. Well, she had to go to surgery, and they found two liters of blood floating free in her belly. And her, her hemoglobin was, I mean, she was still markedly anemic even after being transfused with two or three units of blood. And she did recover over time, um, did have a pregnancy in the left fallopian tube, wound up losing that fallopian tube. Uh, but I will never get over that misdiagnosis. I probably played a part in my becoming an OBGYN and pelvic surgeon in my career where I wound up performing hundreds of uh, open surgeries and laparoscopies on tubal pregnancies over my career at a big city hospital, inner city hospital in Miami, and then for many years in private practice. And I'll tell you, I never forgot to perform a pregnancy test. Now, I think that it's important to know that in survival, knowing what you're dealing with very, very fast is going to help. And, and that goes with things like appendicitis, and that goes with things like a ovarian cyst rupturing, a tubal pregnancy rupturing, things like that. Because in a lot of circumstances, you're going to need to know what's going on. Now, you're not going to have ultrasound technology, which normally is the way they can identify things these days. They do an ultrasound of the uh, lower abdomen and they see the uterus if the uterus doesn't have a pregnancy in it and there's a lump or something unusual in the tube sometimes they even see the heart beating in the tube of the of the fetus another way that we used to evaluate a pregnancy to see if it was going normally whether it was developing normally was the rate of increase of the hcg or the pregnancy hormone now the pregnancy hormone hcg goes up in a very high graph graphic slope i guess in a normal pregnancy but goes up much slower much much more of a gradual increase in a tubal pregnancy also progesterone levels of more than a certain amount are considered to be favorable and uh, for a viable pregnancy in the right place whereas b below a certain amount i think 20 or something like that 25 uh, are is suggestive that a pregnancy is not going well so these were some ways that we were able to monitor and identify a tubal pregnancy early on. But you're not going to have that. So how are you going to know whether there is a tubal pregnancy? Well, one way that we did it in the old days before ultrasound was widely available, again telling you how old I am, is we would actually 
place a needle in back in the vagina in back of the cervix and then we it would be an empty empty syringe and we would pull out what would be blood if there was a ruptured tubal pregnancy and that was one way you could tell that that you were dealing with that kind of situation and that person wound up going going to surgery nowadays there's actually a way to stop cells from dividing in a pregnancy in a pregnancy that is in the tube, and that's using the old um, chemotherapeutic agent methotrexate. And so you give them uh, the victim methotrexate, the patient methotrexate, and they wind up uh, having the pregnancy not continue, and you hope that the pregnancy will just sort of disintegrate and go away on its own. So that is something that can happen. Unfortunately, once a, a tubal pregnancy has occurred, there's always a higher chance for it to occur again because there's going to be scarring. So in a lot of circumstances, and I think that if it turns out that you need to stop bleeding, that you are going to have to do some kind of surgical procedure. And I've had, if you go to YouTube, you can see things like appendectomies done without anesthesia, or at least without general anesthesia or spinal anesthesia in some underdeveloped countries I've seen I've seen them. Uh, they you can't hear what they're saying because they're speaking a, another language, but you can see that it's being done. And uh, basically, they sedate that person in some way. They make a small a small incision as they possibly can, and they get through it and uh, find the tube. And usually, in this circumstance, if there's a tubal pregnancy in it, you'd have to remove the tube. And uh, we used to save the tube if at all possible. We simply by making a small incision in the tube laparoscopically, op open the tube up, remove the actual pregnancy from the tube, and then just leave it, and it usually healed on its own. Unfortunately, again, higher tubal pregnancy rate after that in that tube. That's because of scarring. But it's something that probably will have to happen again. And of course, the risk of maternal death as a result of operating on somebody who you know, without anesthesia, I mean, it probably is going to be somewhat higher, but I'll tell you, it's going to be very high. It's going to be a very, very, very lethal condition to have if you have a tubal pregnancy and you do not act in some way to deal with it. So tubal pregnancies, absolutely a major pregnancy risk. Another great reason why you should consider some family planning method that why also why you should consider having some pregnancy tests in your medic kit if you are the medic you should be carrying some pregnancy tests as well because if you have if you have people that are of childbearing age that you're going to be dealing with simply because that's going to help you make a diagnosis so simple to do relatively inexpensive you just need to have a few of those as part of your equipment now, how about if somebody has lost a great deal of blood? Now, one thing I didn't mention, if there's a great deal of blood that's floating in the abdomen, sometimes they auto-transfuse the woman's own blood at, that is in the belly and try to put it back into her bloodstream. They do, yeah. That's called auto-transfusion. Auto I'm assuming they put it through a filter system. Yes, but that's <laughs> that's what I was about to say. Okay. They put it through a Something filter special. system. Right, a special filter system that yes. allows them to use 
the person's own blood that's floating free in the belly and put it back in their veins and arteries. That's something... That's a desperate situation. That would be something that would almost certainly cause an infection in the blood if you did it in some kind of unclean environment or unsterile environment. And so it's it's some I of the hard realities. Times of desperation, you do what you have to do. Hard realities, man. It it is makes me appreciate the blood banks. Thank you guys for donating right. blood out there. Those of you who do that. And I just have doing to, a good thing. You've probably saved yes, a lot are. of lives that you have no idea. They really have, and I, I just want to say that we do that once in a while, but we don't do it as often as we should. So we need to do that more often. I don't know. Sometimes I worry that we need all the blood we can get. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well. I don't know. I'm constantly cutting myself and running into things and bumping things, and I don't seem to heal as well as I used to. So I have to say I might be of the age that I'm kind of um, – I, I like the blood that's in my right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know how fast I'm making new ones, new red blood cells, so – but when I was young, I did donate a lot. You did? I was never afraid. No, I, I, I think it was a great thing. They had a blood bank come through uh, when I was in high school. They parked out front. And now they have them in front of the movie theater that we go to. Yes. If you donate blood, I think you get free movie tickets or at least a big discount. And t- tickets are expensive. So if you guys want to go on a cheap date... <laughs> ask her if she's willing to give blood or ask him if he's willing to give blood I shouldn't be sexist that way and say that the guy is going to have to pay I'm just old fashioned that's how I grew up have to up. pay in blood yeah, but ah. you know hey listen just say sweetheart I'd like to go out with you but are you willing to donate blood <laughs> check the box yes or no <laughs> so anyhow that is my version of what ectopic pregnancy is all about, tubal pregnancy. Well, I think you also gave at least some kind of feeling that maybe there's something that can be done because if you don't give thought to it and it happens, it's probably too late to think about it. And that, like, oh my gosh, what do we do? Your belly's filled up with blood. You're looking kind of pale here and I've got a pregnancy test in my hand that's positive. This is all really bad. Well, that's, that's the thing. It's not the time to think about this. If this is something that happens in a off-grid situation, then that per that woman won't survive. No, and not it, unless again you they have take drastic thought measures. about things right. and maybe had some preparation. I mean, nothing is perfect. Even You're going today. to try to do the best that you can with what you have, right? And that's the kind of thing that we talk about. So looking at some of these videos, is it going to make you a surgeon? No. Are you going to be able to take out your wife's appendix? No, you're not today going to be able to do that. Take them to the hospital. But if something terrible happens and you're in the situation and your hands are tied and it's do something or they're going to die, maybe you'll have some ideas because you thought about it. Of, of what you could possibly do in those situations. And that's why we're here, folks. We're here to give you ideas, things to think about. Outside the box. Outside the box. Outside the conventional wisdom. Equipment that you might 
have put together with no intention. We have no intention of you guys ever doing anything that we say. We hope that there's always modern medical facilities, that everything works great, that you know everyone has access to some sort of medical care at all times, forever and ever and ever, you know, until the sun explodes and and the earth cracks open <laughs> and roasts like an egg. It's gonna happen. We don't have a choice. Yeah. It's a chemical reaction. But until then, we hope it all works out fine. What we're giving you is worst case scenarios. That's right. You're stuck. There's no hospital to go to. There's nobody to help you. Somebody's pregnant. They're bleeding. And you've figured out that this is an ectopic. They've got, and I'm sure you talked about this, having pretty bad pain on usually one side or the other side. Yes, actually, I didn't mention that, but I... uh, Indicates probably what side it is on. Right. Now, once... uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because once the blood is of enough quantity, it's all over the belly. And people will actually feel pain generally and maybe under the diaphragm if it gets under the diaphragm. And also in their shoulder. And yes, which is an unusual thing. A lot of people will have abdominal surgery and they'll have shoulder pain and they can't figure it out. It's called referred pain. Right. Because there are connections uh, nervous connections between the shoulder and the af- uh, the diaphragm. Diaphragm. So if you have something pressing upon the diaphragm. Causing, and even it could be gas. Sometimes mm-hmm. if you get enough, and it just depends on how many nerve endings you have in your intestines. Some people have more. I have a lot more than you seem to have because nothing mm. ever bothers him and pretty much everything bothers me <laughs> and my kids. And it, my mother had the same problem and her mom had the same problem. Some people are wired with a little more nerve endings. But sometimes people like us, when we have a little too much gas, you might have a shoulder or even sometimes it feels like a a heart pain, mm-hmm. a chest pain. And I think, of course, you get to a certain age, you're like, okay, am I having a heart attack or is this just gas? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, wait, I'll, I'll wait a few more pains and we'll see what happens. And then hopefully the gas moves from that particular spot. But, yes, yeah, so you could have strange pain. They could be pointing to their shoulder, their upper abdomen in weird places and it still be an ectopic or some sort of internal bleeding. Well, anyhow, I want to thank... Oh, oh and one last thing. Can we be less specific about right. where the pain will be? Right. One last Sorry. thing. One last thing. That even today mm-hmm. in, in developed nations, that tubal pregnancy or ectopic pregnancy is the number one cause of death maternal death in the first trimester even today so it is it, Don't ignore it pain exists and, bleeding. and it is part of your differential diagnosis the things that you consider if somebody is if a woman is having lower abdominal pain especially yes so that's important and always do a pregnancy test I can't emphasize that it enough. cannot hurt and these things are so sensitive now they're they're I'm reading that they're going to be picking up like a couple of days after conception. That's amazing. That's crazy. It's amazing. I picked it up on my first one, I think, nine days because I was doing that fertility testing mm-hmm. and and checking my temperature. We I, we discussed basal body temperature, I think, last, time. last 
show. But I was checking my temperature. I knew I had ovulated and I counted. And I think I, I started testing on the ninth day just to see if I could pick it up earlier because test back then you weren't supposed to pick up to at least 16 to 18 days past conception. Right. So on the ninth day I checked it and it was weekly positive. Wow. It actually, but now they're saying just oh, like a few yeah. days. Absolutely. It's amazing. Like I said, we... How can in the old days we were witch doctors. The old days we were witch doctors, and today uh, the doctors that are twenty years in the future are going to say that the doctors today are witch doctors. Oh no! Because technology just 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 like a juggernaut. I understand, but I'll tell you what's not going to change. What? How to deliver a baby? That is not going to change. The technique that we use to deliver babies is. Exactly the same way yeah. babies came out from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So that is one thing that will not change. I want to just thank uh, our paramedic friend who uh, sent me an email reminding me to talk about ectopic pregnancy. I didn't ask. Well, being specific, I didn't ask permission. Yes. I didn't ask permission for his name, uh, so I'm not giving it. But thank you so much. I do appreciate it, and it's a great topic for us to talk about. Yes, and I'm going to give you a hot cup of tea with honey and lemon when we're done. Hey, you know, we are very proud to be members of the Expert Council of Jack Spirko, our good friends, Survival Podcast, one of the granddaddies of all survival podcasts. Mm -hmm. And we had a couple of questions from some of his listeners about the use of comfrey and other strategies for certain types of orthopedic issues. Okay. And so without further ado, here is our response. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, the Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its 700-page third edition, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, the Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials and Austere Settings, and designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today I'm answering two questions, one from Ryan and another one from Don. They both have orthopedic problems, and they both ask about comfrey in their emails. Here's Don's. Let's see, I have a question for Dr. Bones. How do you deal and prevent sore joints from repetitive motion? I've been driving a truck for about six years. My knees have started to ache a little bit at times. What can I do to remedy this and prevent further problems? Would the comfrey salve Jack recommends be helpful? Thanks, Don from Maine. Also, here is Ryan's. Ryan says, I'm having rotator cuff surgery on my left shoulder. I would like Doc Bone's recommendations for my healing process. The MRI shows that I've torn my rotator cuff halfway through. Oh, boy. The doctor does not know if he'll be able to do a debridement or a repair until he actually sees it. He did say he'll be shaving away part of my bone between the bone and bursa sac to make more room for the movement of the rotator. The surgeon recommended that I purchase a cryotherapy machine, but I do not have any experience with these. They have them for purchase at the surgery center. I do not yet know the brand or model that they offer, but would like to know what I should be looking for. I'll be going to physical therapy three times a week starting the day after surgery. How about Dr. Christopher's comfrey ointment? What are your suggestions on the quickest way to full recovery? 
Guys, the human body is a miracle of biological engineering, but moving parts wear down with time or they can be damaged with excessive use. When an orthopedic problem occurs, rest is probably the best way to cool down the inflammation. In some cases, it's best to immobilize an injured joint to prevent movement altogether caused by absent-minded exertions. Neither of you told me your ages, but once you hit a certain age, you're at more risk for a deterioration of joints like our trucker Don and torn rotators and other injuries like Ryan's. Athletic injuries during school sports, by the way, leave a lot of scarring, whether they required surgery or not. Just ask Miami quarterback Dan Marino about his knees. He'll tell you. Knee pain, by the way, can be caused by ligament or tendon strains, by bursitis or even arthritis. Whatever the case, it's always best to rest a knee and use both ice and heat at the appropriate time. If you think you did something that injured your knee, and especially if it swells, it's important to get ice on the knee as soon as you possibly can, and during the first 48 hours, absolutely. Ice will decrease the swelling and the pain. Ice packs should be placed where it hurts for 15 to 20 minutes every 2 to 4 hours for the first couple of days. After that, you should use ice after physical activity, but otherwise use heat. Heat is most helpful after the first couple of days. It promotes blood flow to the knee area, which carries oxygen needed for healing. Heat helps control swelling also once the ice treatment has been completed, and it can help relax ligaments, tendons, and nerves in the knee. At the same time, anti-inflammatory medications like ibuprofen can decrease inflammation and pain. Sometimes varying ice and heat treatments can help control inflammation and pain on their own. For flare-ups, I want you to use ice, but for daily use, I want heat on that knee. Everyone's different, Don, and what works for you might not be as good for someone else. At least this is a good place to start. Now, Ryan. The rotator cup is a group of muscles and tendons that surround the shoulder joint, keeping the head of your upper arm bone firmly within the shallow socket of the shoulder. A rotator cuff injury can cause a dull ache in the shoulder, which often worsens when you try to sleep on the involved side. I've had to deal with this to a minor extent for some time, or at least I tell myself it's minor. Rotator cuff injuries occur most often in people who repeatedly perform overhead motions in their jobs or sports. Examples include painters, carpenters, or people who play certain sports, maybe tennis, things like that. Third base did it to me. The risk of rotator cuff injury also increases with age. I can also tell you that's true. Many people recover from rotator cuff injuries with physical therapy exercises that improve flexibility and strength of the muscles that surround the shoulder joint. When a rotator cuff occurs acutely, that's the result, in other words, of a specific one-time motion, like a pitcher throwing out his arm, surgery indeed may be necessary, some of which can be major, including replacement of the joint like they do with hips. It's possible, Ryan, that you tried conservative treatments first, such as rest, ice, and physical therapy. A cryotherapy machine, as you mentioned, may work for you, but is it better than ice packs? Some machines also use electrical current on top of cold to work their magic, but I don't have personal experience with them, so I can't tell you if there's a one brand that's better than another. I assume that it works for some, but not if there's a significant tear. If that situation occurs, you need steroid injections into your shoulder joint. These injections are often helpful, but they should only be used when absolutely necessary, as they can contribute to a weakened tendon over time. The reason why I'm answering both Don and Ryan's questions at once 
is because they both ask about comfrey. Comfrey is a plant used in herbal medicine. I have some growing in my yard, and Jack does also, I believe. It's been a subject of controversy because there's evidence that it's healing for certain orthopedic problems, but also contains things called pyrolizidine alkaloids, or PAs, which are thought to be poisonous if ingested. Despite this, comfrey leaf, root, rhizome, they're all used as anti-inflammatory agents to treat all kinds of problems. It's used as a tea for upset stomach, ulcers, heavy menstrual periods, diarrhea, pleuritis, cough, bronchitis, chest pain, gosh, even cancer. It's also used as a gargle for gum disease and sore throat. Comfrey, if you apply it to the skin, is thought to help skin ulcers, wounds, joint inflammation, bruises, rheumatoid arthritis, swollen veins, gout, and even fractures. The leaf, root, and root-like stem, or rhizome, are used to make the medicine. The amount of pyrolizidine alkaloids found in comfrey changes according to the time of harvesting and the age of the plant. The quantity also depends on the part of the plant that's used. The roots have 10 times higher amounts of the possibly poisonous PAs than the leaves. Some species of comfrey, by the way, are also more toxic than others. Symphytum officionale, or common comfrey, has less toxins than the prickly comfrey, Symphytum asperum, or Russian comfrey, Symphytum uplandicum. Current medical thinking agrees that topical applications of comfrey are good for a number of issues. Comfrey is possibly effective for decreasing lower or upper back pain. Also applying a cream containing comfrey extract plus methyl nicotinate to the affected area for five days seems to decrease back pain when resting or moving. If you've got wear and tear from osteoarthritis, applying a comfrey extract ointment to the affected area for three weeks or applying a specific cream containing comfrey extract tannic acid, aloe vera gel, eucalyptus oil, and frankincense oil, all in combination for 6 to 12 weeks, seems to decrease pain in people with knee osteoarthritis. That's for you, Don. Sprains. Early research shows that applying comfrey ointment to the affected area for up to two weeks improves mobility, decreases pain, and reduces tenderness and swelling. For all the other issues, the evidence is not all there yet, but you'll find lots of folks who swear by it and deny any ill effects. All I can say is your experience may vary. This is Joe Alden, MD, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits, individual supplies, books, and more at Nurse Amy's store at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.